Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Lisette Baron Carvajal, a host of the channel. Here at the New Books Network, we know that the world is facing a tremendous challenge and that many of you are dealing to the best of your abilities with the consequences of this pandemic. We hope that in the midst of all these interviews can help you face the dread and isolation, or at the very least that they can distract you and help you think in something else. This is why today I'll be talking to Robert Cole about his wonderful book, Forgotten Peace, Reform, Violence, and the Making of Contemporary Colombia, published by University of Carolina Press in 2017. Welcome, Rob. Thank you for talking to me, especially in this difficult moment. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay, so tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to study Latin American history and focus particularly on Colombia? Yeah, so I was really fortunate to go to a great public high school in Massachusetts that had strong history and foreign language programs. So when I went to college, I knew more or less that I wanted to study both history and Spanish, which is what I ended up doing, majoring in history, double minoring in Latin American and Caribbean studies, and then Spanish literature. Um, And I wrote my honors thesis on JFK's Latin America policy. So both the Alliance for Progress, the development side, and also the counterinsurgency side. Uh, And those, those, Issues have remained at the core of my intellectual interests since. When I was in grad school, one of my college roommates joked that I've just been revising the same paper since freshman year, and he's not entirely wrong uh, in saying that. So I went straight from college to study for my PhD at Harvard with the plan of studying Mexico with both John Womack Jr. and John Coatsworth, who were there at the time. But those issues that I was interested in, again, around development and security in the 1960s, Issues have a different sort of resonance in Mexico just because of the long-term trajectory of the Mexican Revolution. Um, And those issues turn out to have more currency in Colombia than probably almost anywhere else in the hemisphere uh, because Colombia became the so-called showcase for both the alliance and for counterinsurgency programs. So by chance, Womack, my second semester of grad school, offered a seminar on Colombia for the first time in his career. Uh, and I took it and actually audited it two of the three more times he taught it before he retired. Uh, and I wrote really big seminar paper for that class. I was really fortunate to find sources on microfilm at the JFK library itself um, for the project. And I, in addition to finding something that really, again, spoke to me from this period I was already interested in, I liked the rest of Colombian history as well. And it also happened that a teacher at my high school who had lived in Colombia in the 1990s, we're in the mid-2000s now, um, he lived in Colombia in the 1990s. He was headed back there around the time that I graduated from college and started grad school. So I ran into him right before he left and he said, oh, you're interested in studying Latin America. You should come to Bogota. And two years later, I did just that. And that'll be next month, so 15 years ago, uh, mid-2005. 
Well, awesome. Um, so this is the product of your dissertation, right? This book. So tell us about how you turned that dissertation into this book. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about how things changed in that process. Yeah. I ended up visiting probably around a dozen archives in Colombia and the U.S. for the dissertation. And the main collection was the uh, Interior Ministry papers, which are housed at the Archivo General de la Nación, the AGN of Bogotá, which at that point, 2005, 2006, very few scholars had consulted very systematically. So I, I had very much campo abierto. I had sort of an open field um, in which to work. Uh, so this wasn't a very well-studied time period, the late 50s and early 60s. There was also wasn't a whole lot of archivally-based historiography, which was both an, an advantage and a disadvantage because I, I had my pick of topics, but I really had to figure out a lot of the background and the context as I went along. So in the end, I ended up with this absurdly long 820-page dissertation. But it was only seven, like 700-plus pages in that I realized what the connecting thread of the story was. So uh, when I finished the PhD, it was sort of, I had a question for a couple of years. Is this big dissertation? Is it one book? Is it one and a half books? Um, people finally pushed me to make it one book. So it became a question, on the one hand, of foregrounding that thread around some of the post-conflict rehabilitation programs that I'm sure we'll get into to talking about later in the interview, foregrounding those. Uh, and at the same sort of second, I really shed the scalar framework of the dissertation. So the dissertation was very much concerned with the Cold War, with sort of the international history of Latin America. Um, but I found it was very difficult if for nothing, no other reason than just a, a page count. I found it very hard to scale from sort of local on the ground happenings in the central Colombian countryside to say what the Colombian government was doing at the Organization of American States around the Cuba question in the early 60s. So I made a conscious decision to sort of shed those larger scales of analysis around the global, the hemispheric. I've published on that separately, but I got really interested in more more the local and the regional. And as part of that too, I decided to study this macro region called Gran Tolima, um, which wasn't one of the focal points of the dissertation. So that meant reading back through more of the documents that I had digitized and collected um, in Colombian archives, but then also going back and starting to consult the regional newspaper. Uh, also around this time, 2010, 2011, El Tiempo, the major Colombian newspaper, digitized a lot of its microfilm through Google. So it's not not a very user-friendly archive. It's not really searchable, but in some ways it's the browsable infinite archive for 20th century Colombia. I could look at, spend the rest of my time, the rest of my career looking at nothing but that newspaper. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly rich source. So beginning the early part of the 2010s, I started dealing with these new sources, sort of wrestling with some new frameworks, really placing myself in this local and regional history uh, I wrote probably two thirds of a manuscript based on the dissertation, but was uh, told by my by colleagues at my first job, we don't really see what you're doing here. Um, why don't you try X, Y, and Z? So I really went back to the drawing board and started over from scratch a second time. Uh, and that turned into the book that became Forgotten Peace. 
Excellent. And here I will tell our listeners that I follow you on Twitter and you have shared very interesting videos on like tips for researchers, right? For historians, mm -hmm. but also for like people that are doing research in general. So I'm giving that information to our listeners so they can, you know, follow you on Twitter or check out your videos in YouTube because they are super useful and they have been useful for me. I've taken up some of your ideas and it's been, it's been great now that I'm starting to do my, my dissertation um, research. That, that's great. <laughs> so let's move on to uh, the main argument of your book or what you're doing in the dissertation. And uh, you tell the readers uh, from the very beginning that the purpose of your book is to explore how Colombians grapple with violence during and after the period known as La Violencia. But more importantly, I believe you also show how the term La Violencia, as a way of delimiting a particular time period of Colombia's history, only came to being in the 1960s and was the result of alienation from a nearly decade-long experiment with democratization and social reform. So for those listeners unfamiliar with Colombian history, tell us what La Violencia as a temporal concept stands for. Maybe here you can explain why you argued that the emergence of this concept is tied up to the history of the FARC creation. Yeah, so broadly, La Violencia, with, and that's with capital letters, uh, refers to the worst internal conflict that any Latin American country experienced in the middle decades of the 20th century. We're talking perhaps 180,000 people were killed and over a million forcibly displaced over the course of a little more than a decade, at a moment when Colombia has around 12 million people. So comprehending what happened historically and how this has been contested historiographically, I think, requires me to first sketch out some common assumptions about Colombian history. By the final third of the 19th century, and to an extent not seen nearly anywhere else in Latin America, Colombia's liberal and conservative political parties consolidated as the primary source of public identity. One argument within that is that liberals killed conservatives because they were conservatives and vice versa. My research for the book fits into a number of other studies that show how the process ran the other way. People were liberals and conservatives because of violence. That is to say, the experience of violence in civil wars cemented and then reproduced partisan identity over the decades. And I could go into detail about an amazing story that's not in the book, but uh, I found in the archives of this sort of clan feud in Tolima, in central Colombia, that stretches from the final war of the 19th civil war of the 19th century the war of a thousand days stretches from there to the 1930s into the 1950s and the 1960s so we're talking about a multi-generational grudge that led to i don't know how many dozens of deaths over these three distinct moments it was really an incredible story to find but what happens concerning colombian history on a macro level during the middle third of the 19th century a dynamic developed in which national level shifts in politics reverberated at the local level. For instance, by enabling local actors to pursue vendettas against their rivals from the other party. For instance, the Liberal Party won the presidency in 1930 for the first time in about half a century. And in scattered parts of Colombia, mainly in the Indian highlands that run from Bogota to the Venezuelan border, uh, liberals targeted conservatives with harassment and violence. So in turn, in 1946, the conservatives won the presidential elections over an internally divided liberal party. However, over the course of the 1930s and 1940s, politics had become more polarized and zero-sum, as we can see in other Latin American cases as well. 
So this meant that beginning in 1946, Columbia didn't just witness reprisals by local conservatives against liberals, but also a conservative party in power that began to use the state apparatus, particularly the police, to seek an electoral advantage. It's a process of violent electioneering. Now, many accounts place the starting point of La Violencia later, in 1948, when Bogotá suffered the worst urban riot in Latin American history following the assassination of the left liberal politician Jorge Elias Rigaitán. Now, the conservative repression that followed this popular uprising certainly escalated violence levels. For instance, it's estimated that in 1950, when the hardline conservative Laureano Gómez became president, 50,000 people died. So we're talking maybe more than a quarter of all the deaths between the mid-1940s and the late 1950s happening in just one year. However, to argue that La Violencia began with Gaitán's assassination and the so-called Bogotazo runs a couple of risks. First, it can obscure the fact that uprisings took place not, not just in Bogotá, but also in provincial cities and towns, particularly in the Magdalena River Valley, the central part of the country. And second, there's a larger challenge involved. I would argue that to treat La Violencia as an equal clash between the two traditional parties misses the crucial element of conservative state terror that began in 1946. And this allows us to treat the Colombian case in the 1940s and 50s alongside later cases of state violence, such as in, in the Southern Cone or in Central America in the 70s and 80s. Now, certainly by the 19, early 1950s, liberal and communist party resistance had formed in multiple regions of Colombia. So resistance against hegemonic authoritarian conservative rule, and then after 1953, military rule as well. People from all parties in Colombia suffered uh, in the 40s and 50s. But much of the early violence was committed by the conservative-led government and its private allies. So for that reason, I think it's important to locate the origins of La Violencia in 1946. Now, if we fast forward to the end of this temporal epoch. Um, when did La Violencia end? Probably the majority of secondary sources written in both Spanish and English would say that the conflict ended in the mid-1960s. Now, this argument has utility for two reasons. First, it introduces coherence between the partisan violence of the 40s and 50s, and then the so-called banditry of the late 50s and early 60s, it's a moment where any political or ideological motivations were believed to have fallen aside, that rural violence that continued only had criminal ends. Now, a second advantage to arguing that La Violencia continued into the 1960s is that it allows for continuity between those older forms of partisan struggle and then what Colombia has ex experienced since, namely the civil war with the FARC. FARC formed in 1964, took the name FARC in 19. 66. So there are ways in which arguing that La Violencia extended into the 1960s uh, really fits into a larger set of arguments about Colombia as a permanently violent country. So historiographically, La Violencia has been and remains a historiographically contested category. But one of the things I try to show with the book is how contested not just this category was, but also the idea of violence more broadly was as well for the historical actors of the 50s and 60s. Building on the point I made earlier about 1946 versus 1948 and the Bogotá as the start of La Violencia, Colombians' quest to understand what was happening in their country, if not the actual experience of violence itself, this was not simply an urban story. So Forgotten Peace is written around encounters between urban and rural Colombians over the question of violence and the pursuit of peace. And to answer your second question, 
the FARC doesn't simply fit into this as the postscript, as the kind of violence that comes after the period that I look at in the book. As I'm sure we'll discuss more, the men who would form the FARC were important local and regional participants in the national experiment with peacemaking that commenced in 1957-58 as Colombia tried to move out of the period of authoritarian rule that ran from 1949 to 1957. Yeah, and I cannot tell enough our readers how important this uh, La Violencia as a, as a temporal framework is for Colombians. Like, for me personally, it's a way I uh, I understand my country, but also my family's own history, right? Uh, I am from originally, I was born in the region that your book um, analyzes. So I, I, I really feel uh, personally the, the story you're telling. Um, so La Violencia as a concept, right, as, a, as this temporal framework is a product of disillusionment with democratization and social reform a feeling of disenchantment in relation to the forgotten peace alluded in the title of your book. So you deal with the history of the Frente Nacional, a period that some historians of Colombia have characterized as, quote-unquote, the end of politics. So maybe you can tell our listeners some of the context of uh, Colombian history, in particular in relation to the Frente Nacional, and Maybe you can also tell us why Why do you think uh, Colombians have forgotten about this important attempt of peace building and instead have seen this period as mostly like violent? Mm-hmm. So in 1956, Laureano Gomez, who's the former conservative president whom I already mentioned, meets up in Spain where he's in exile with Alberto Lleras Camargo, who's then the head of the Liberal Party. Uh, and they meet to create a roadmap for how Colombia will return to democratic rule. And very much caught up in that is how will we put an end to the violence that's still occurring in the countryside. So they come up with this power sharing agreement in which the liberal and conservative parties will alternate the presidency for a number of years. And then also they will split Congress and the bureaucracy evenly between the two parties. So you'll have parity between the liberals and conservatives. This was thought to be a solution to the problem of political violence in the 1940s, where you had the zero-sum game between the two parties that I already mentioned, and you had uh, people fighting over the ability to make patronage appointments and so on. So it's thought that this is really going to eliminate the causes of the struggle between the two parties. Now, historians and others have seen the National Front's relationship to peace in two different ways. First, they assume that peacemaking was sort of an automatic one and done process. That Lariano and Yeres Camargo meet in Spain, they come up with this pact between the two parties, and that's it. There's somehow perfect party discipline, and there's no more fighting around partisan identity. Yes, maybe you have these bandits who continue to operate in the countryside, but they're sort of outside of the mainstream of political and social life. Now, the second assumption that fits into this uh, is an idea that the National Front was a cynical ploy by Colombian elites. It was a means for them to hold on to power, but it really lacked any sort of substantial policy content. And I would argue that this became very much part of the conventional wisdom around Colombian history for a generation of Colombians, particularly on the left. And this is a, a broader perspective that the idea of la violencia fits into. But I would say it's, this, isn't, this doesn't hold up to historical scrutiny. To be sure, a lot of Colombians even 
came to see the National Front as not the solution to Colombia's so-called national problems, but as a cause of them. But I would argue that this perspective is historically produced. So if it exists at all in 1958, it's really just a minority position. It's something we only see developing over the course of the National Front period itself. And I really find it helpful to differentiate between the first half of the National Front, 1958 to 1966, which is the period my book deals with, and then the second half of the National Front, 1966 to 1974, as a second period in which the political dynamics are even more complicated and even more fractured. Uh, And one thing I could add here too, sort of historicizing this period, seeing the National Front as not a very neat solution among elites, but as a, again, a very contested political process, even the National Front itself isn't 16 years long when it's set up at the start. So the, the plan was to have a conservative president in power in 1958, a liberal takeover for the second administration in 1962, and then another conservative in 1966. But that all gets scrambled because of fighting within the conservative party. And ultimately, Alberto Lleras, this liberal, has to step in and run for the presidency in 1958. So now the liberal party is in control of the presidency. And in order to placate the conservatives who didn't want another liberal to be the National Front's last president, They extend the National Front from 12 to 16 years, that is from three to four presidential administrations. This happens, it's in 1959. Um, And they have the numbers to make it go through Congress, but this isn't to say there's not a lot of political friction as part of the process, that you have opposition conservatives in Congress in particular who very strenuously object to the extension of the National Front. So again, it's... If you look at the archival records, if you look at newspapers from the period, these political processes become apparent that aren't there in the standard narratives of this period of Colombian history. Now, one other sort of mode of history telling that I think is uh, important to mention here, uh, or at least interesting to mention here, which I don't talk about in the book, but I've talked about in actually some Twitter threads since the book was published, The idea of La Violencia with capital letters as a way to describe this period uh, is coined as the second half of the National Front begins. So we're talking about the mid to late 1960s. So by calling it La Violencia with capital letters, there's sort of a thought, okay, here's where we can link the violence of the 1940s and 50s to these forms of banditry that have continued to exist in the early 1960s. So it reinforces this idea of Colombia as a violent country. Now, at the same moment that this idea of La Violencia, I think, is getting popularized, Gabriel García Márquez publishes 100 Years of Solitude in the late 1960s, which introduces a very cyclical notion of Colombian history. Now, one of García Márquez's journalistic collaborators around the same, or a few years later in the 1970s, is the sociologist Orlando Faz Borda, who is, I argue, the intellectual who comes up with the idea of La Violencia with capital letters. And they collaborate on an alternative current events journal in the 1970s for a few years. And so I think that really allows us to to think about the ways in which Colombian history is being narrated and popularized as we get into the later period and the ways in which certain political commitments, particularly on the left, are read back onto this history in the 1940s and 50s. Yeah, I really like how your book is, it's a history about this period, but it's also a history about memory, right? It's, a, it's you investigate how 
Colombians remember this time and what they have forgotten. So this is a super important intervention that I really want to flag to our listeners when they go and read the book. So maybe now we can move on to the chapters. You have introduced the figure of Alberto Lleras Camargo. So he is the main protagonist of chapter uh, one that is titled Messenger of a New Colombia. You tell us that Alberto Lleras Camargo emerged in the late 1950s as the paramount messenger of a new Colombia. So he was part of a generation of letter Colombians uh, that in not conceive Colombia as a place of violence. Um, so tell us a little bit about this man. Maybe here you can tell us why he's important in your story. And also you can tell us about a distinction you make on that chapter and later comes through the book between what you call the país político, the país nacional, and the país letrado. So tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, sure. I'll start with that second point first. Gaitán, the liberal leader murdered in 1948, introduced two important concepts to Colombia's political lexicon during his career. First was the país político, the country of politics, which refers to the class of political elites, above all from Bogotá, who saw themselves as Colombia's natural leaders. And that's actually the term they use, the jefes naturales. By contrast, the país nacional, we can understand to be the authentic, real Colombia. Uh, and here we can get more the, the meaning that Gaitán intended for this phrase by thinking about two other of his famous quotes. El pueblo es superior a sus dirigentes. The people are greater than their leaders. And yo no soy un hombre, soy un pueblo. I am not a man, I am people. Uh, so for this book, I try to put myself and my readers close to the experience of the characters in the story. So on the one hand, that took the shape of a narrative approach. And on the other hand, I try as much as possible to use my actors' categories. So talking about the país político and the país nacional captures a crucial tension between the governed and the rulers. To use a rather cliched phrase, these two terms did a lot of work for me as I was writing the book. And at the same time, as I was starting to write, I had the thought that there was there's also in Colombian history a current of writers and journalists and intellectuals who often rub up against the país político, but are generally outside of it. And it was important for me to flag this difference between the world of politics and, and a world of letters. Um, so I came up with the idea of the, the país letrado, which we can connect to other strands in Latin American historiography, particularly Anjarama's lettered city. And this was particularly important as I, in the later chapters of the book, wanted to idea, uh, deal with the idea of violence, but also with ideas about development. Uh, and Yeres Camargo turned out to be a very helpful vehicle for talking about these issues. Um, so in terms of the practical business of turning the dissertation into the book, when I made my first attempt at a book manuscript, I, I followed what we could think of as a traditional introduction. So it was about 35 pages long. I tried to introduce the background of Colombian history, much of like what I've tried to do up to this point. And one of the hardest and funniest pieces of advice I ever got from a colleague who had read, who read this first version of the manuscript he wasn't a Latin Americanist. Uh, he said, I thought your introduction was so boring that I had to stop halfway through, go read a couple chapters, and then come back to finish the introduction. So I said, okay, I want to avoid that at all costs The next in the next version of the book or the next version of the manuscript that I start writing. And then also an even more practical consideration, uh, publishers want shorter 
introduction. So not this 30 to 35 page, but maybe a 15 to 20 some page uh, introduction. So I tried to make the introduction of Forgotten Peace as short as possible. And then the first half gives that background material, but it does it through the life and times of Arreta Yeres Camargo. Um, and I picked him for a couple reasons. Again, practically speaking, his writings are relatively available. His personal archive was one of the first collections that I accessed. He was a really prolific journalist. He was also the first head of or the second head of the Pan-American Union in the mid-1940s, and then the first secretary general of the OAS after 1948. So he has a lot of speeches and a lot of newspaper articles from earlier in his career. He'd been very involved with the reformist liberal governments of the 1930s. So he just had a lot of material to work with. And he captures a lot of the strands, embodies a lot of the strands in Colombian history that I was interested in. So he's born not that long after the last civil war of the 19th century. So he's part of, he grows up in this political environment in which Colombians are learning to heal from the wounds of civil war. And he comes of age as the political party, the liberal conservative parties come to an agreement, not the power sharing agreement that would happen under Yeres in the 50s and the 60s, but sort of an earlier attempt to live and do politics in a peaceful way. Um, so it's the strand of politics known in 20th century Colombia as republicanism. Um, so it's no mistake that his the major biography of Yeres, which was published in the 1990s, is called precisely The Last Republican. And he moves very ably as he sort of becomes an adult, moves very ably between the world of letters and the world of politics. So he's a really beautiful writer. He was a great journalist. Um, and then, as I said, became involved with liberal politics, or maybe better said, liberal administration in the 1930s and in the 1940s. Uh, he actually becomes president in the mid-40s when the sitting president is sort of forced to resign. There's a coup attempt in 44. He's under a lot of pressure from within his own party. And he resigns and hands power over the Yeres to finish out his term. So Yeres is very much committed to certain set of democratic ideals that are held by sectors of the país politico that later find expression internationally with the Organization of American States. Um, he's this really... Uh, Statesman more than a politician is one way that I put it in the book. And he's generally seen today as one of the greatest presidents Colombia has ever had. There's certainly ways in which he reflected the biases, particularly around gender and race of his generation of Colombians of that era, which is something I don't talk about as much in the book, which I've become more aware of since. But he's a really fascinating figure. And as you said, he anchors the story, not just in the first chapter, of the book, but really through the first half of the book until he leaves office uh, in 1962. And at which point it takes a lot out of him. So he not just retires from my book, he really retires from public life in a number of ways. He's, he's really exhausted by this experience of having led Colombia through the democratic transition and then this sort of tumultuous, tumultuous post-conflict period from 58 to 62. Yeah. And you do tell your story through these main characters or figures. So uh, in chapter two, you introduce another important man uh, of this story. His name, he was a Catholic priest. His name was uh, Germán Guzmán Campos. So Guzmán Campos was uh, one of the members of the Comisión Nacional Investigadora de las Causas y Situaciones Presentes de Violencia en el Territorio Nacional. Really That's a very long name. Top. Yes, it's a terrible <laughs> So 
he is long name. And in English, that uh, translates to the National Investigatory Commission on the Causes and Current Situations of Violence in the National Territory. So very long, very worthy. But maybe you can tell us about uh, the story of this commission and its journey through the hinterlands of the Gran Tolima region. So this is the occasion where you can you know, share a little bit about the region. Uh, so I was very touched by by this history, by this part of your research, because I was born in Ibagué, which you talk about extensively, and my family was displaced from the town of Rovira in the 1940s. So maybe you can you can tell us a little bit about this and how this commission transitioned from being known as the Violence Commission, quote unquote, to being referred to as the Peace Commission. So the book centers, as we've t- talked a little bit about, on the region of Gran Tolima. Um, so Tolima itself is one of Colombia's today 32 departments, regional bodies or states, essentially, although it's a central centralized political system, not a federal system. So they're not quite states. Um, Tolima is about the size of, of New Hampshire or New Jersey. It's got Bogota to the east. It's a strategic corridor. It's uh, in the central center of the Magdalena River Valley, which is the main transport artery for the country. So it's between Bogota to the east uh, and then the, this next river valley over the central Andean range, the Cordillera Central, which is the Cauca River Valley to the west. And one limitation to a lot of Colombian historiography is that uh, it, it pays a lot of attention to regions, and Colombia is very much a country of regions. But in paying attention to regions, a lot of studies have focused just on one single department, uh, and that's sort of an artificial administrative coherence that's not there in everyday life. So rather than just talk about Tolima itself, I look at the area of Gran Tolima or Greater Tolima, which includes not just uh, the Department of Tolima itself, but to the south, the Department of Huila, and then a few outlying, very, very rural frontier, which is not to say borderlands, but sort of unsettled or very lightly settled forest zones um, in departments to the south, like Caquetá, Putumayu, Meta, which is a little bit more to the east. And this is one of, Gran Tolima is really one of the hotspots of state repression and then popular resistance in the 1940s and 50s. And it's also becomes in the 50s, really the site of peacemaking efforts. So for instance, there's a really great quote from a, a British diplomat who, who said in 1958 that Tolima represents in many respects and, and in accentuated form an amalgam of the troubles and problems which affect Colombia as a whole. Um, so that's one reason that I decided to make it the focus of the book. Uh, and it's the focus, too, of a lot of elites in Bogota as the country enters, re-enters democratic rule, the establishment of the National Front in 1958. So there's a lot of discussion as part of that transition into, okay, what's happened to our country over the last 10 years? The military dictatorship of the mid-1950s had maintain itself in power through use of the constitutional state of siege, which meant that it kept Congress and other legislative bodies closed. But the state of siege also allowed it to really impose a strict censorship regime. So as Colombians are coming out of the dictatorship in the late 50s, they're saying, okay, we're going to get a sense for what's happening now. So I argue in the book that these discussions about underdevelopment, about violence, really are an important part of this reconstitution of the public sphere after a period of authoritarian rule. So after some stumbling around um, in 1957, 58, 
by all these political elites and intellectuals in Bogota, Yeres Camargo takes a step that sort of crystallizes the discussion. Um, and he says, why don't we have a group of experts that goes out or at least tries to understand what's the causes of the violence? So this is why this commission that's ultimately formed has this title, National Investigatory Commission on the Causes and Current Situations of Violence. Um, so they appoint politicians from both parties, um, former and retired military men, and then a couple of priests, including Father Guzman, who's from Tolima originally, and had held a couple, he'd been a parish priest in a couple of the zones of worse violence in the 1950s, particularly in the northern part of the department. So they sort of, this this commission forms, Yedis has been elected president, he hasn't yet taken office uh, in mid-1958. Um, they're sort of, they're doing a lot of reading. So this is very much the letrado turn. These guys are intellectuals and they're doing a very paper-based study, which is causing a lot of complaints out in the countryside. So Guzman eventually says to the other members of this commission, 58, that if you want to hunt tigers, you must go to where there are tigers. So this means we need to get out of the city and go out into the countryside to interview people about what's happened to them. So they do precisely that. Um, over the next few months, so again, talking about mid-1958, they, they carry out something like 20,000 interviews with victims of fighting, with some local officials. There's a lot of resistance from these conservative party uh, holdovers who don't want, their, don't want to be implicated in the violence that the party inflicted in the 40s and 50s. But anyway, so the commission's talking a little bit to them, mostly to victims, but also to combatants in the violencia. And they ultimately move to this unexpected role. This is, it's not spelled out in the decree that established them, but they start to help local armed actors. So maybe the local group of uh, armed conservatives and the lo local group of armed liberals to come to local peace agreements where they say, okay, we're not going to kill each other anymore. And we're going to allow people who are displaced by the fighting to come back to their farms. Um, they do this mostly in Gran Tolima. The commission, I think it's about 52, 54 local peace packs. Um, so they become not just a way for information about violence to be disseminated, but also a way for politicians in the national capital, Bogota, also in the regional, a regional capital like Iwage, to reach out to these armed actors in the countryside. And some of that had happened before, but this commission is really important for institutionalizing some of those channels. Its influence is ultimately a little bit limited because it never issues a formal written report. Although some of its recommendations sort of end up getting implemented in terms of post-conflict uh, rehabilitation programs just because of the nature of the violence that they found in the countryside. I should mention Padre Guzman's archive was believed to have been lost. He went to Mexico in the, later in the 1960s as part of the wave of disillusionment that also resulted in the creation of the term La Violencia. And he took the Peace Commission's archive with him to Mexico, and it was believed lost. But it's been found in the last couple of years. It's now being digitized by the Universidad del Valle in Cali. It's, I think it's like 10,000 pages of, one can presume, you know, notes from interviews, petitions from local actors, others, photographs that the commission took during its actions. I'm both sad that I wasn't able to review it, but I'm also grateful that it wasn't yet available to the public when I was finishing this book, because I would never would have finished the book. It would have taken me a couple more years to sort through this incredible, incredible archive.
Well, yeah. And I mean, I guess this is an opportunity for those, for other scholars or PhD students or people interested that maybe in the future we can know more about Padre Guzman's personal archive, right? Um, so I think we can move to chapter three and four. The, the subject of t chapter three is uh, the making of Creole peace, right? And you've alluded to that a little bit. And in chapter four, you analyze how the return of many displaced people produced by those agreements, those peace agreements, right, uh, precipitated locally intense breakdowns of convivencia. So while in this period from 1958 to 1960, there was overall downward trend of violence, of homicides rate, for example, uh, there were still instances in which violence erupted. So in these two chapters, you talk about Pedro Antonio Marín, rebaptized Manuel Marunanda Vélez, for Colombians we know who he is, otherwise known as Tiro Fijo. In English, I think the translation is short shot. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about these chapters, about these peace agreements, and about uh, how, I don't know if paradoxically, but uh, these growing expectativas of the País Nacional or expectativas can be translated to both hopes and expectations, progress towards frustration and disillusionment. Yeah. So Creole peace is a term I came up with to describe this experiment that happens under the early National Front. So the Colombian peace process today, the 2016 accord between the government and the FARC, is very much influenced by other experiments with post-conflict reconciliation and truth-telling. So the Negotiations for the peace accord were hosted by the Cuban government with other uh, international governments as guarantors. You've got the United Nations very much involved in the disarmament of the FARC. You have experiences like the South African Truth Commission that are influencing Colombia's new transitional justice regime of the last couple of years. But Colombia has none of that in the 1950s. There's no international model that Colombians could easily take and apply to their own situation. Uh, and there's really actually a push, I can talk about this in a couple of other contexts later maybe, to really find Colombian solutions to Colombian problems. That might be the best way to put it. So the Paz Criolla is an example of that, this Creole piece. So in the absence of uh, firm international models to follow, Colombians in this period make things up as they go along. So I already referenced one instance of that, which is this investigatory commission sort of on its own starts acting as a peace commission and not just talking to victims and participants in violence, but trying to bring about these localized peace pacts. So beginning in 58, the, uh, the government of Yeres Camargo engages in a number of different initiatives beyond the peace commission to try to bring convivencia or coexistence between Colombians to the countryside. So for instance, uh, they give agrarian loans that allow people to return to their farms um, and begin farming again, to begin to restitch the fabric of rural society. The government also issues a conditional pardon to people who had committed acts of violence since the 1940s. And in some ways, the Peace Commission also acted as a sort of a proto-truth commission as well. So that's one piece of these two chapters and uh, one of the larger arguments of the book. One of the other things I try to do, particularly in these chapters, is really refocus our attention on the period of La Violencia in terms of forced displacement. So 
since the 1980s, Colombia has experienced within the dynamics of the armed conflict, uh, which is not just the fight between the government and the FARC, but also smaller guerrilla groups, and then particularly right-wing narco-paramilitaries, Colombia has experienced since the mid-80s the highest rate of internal displacement of any country in the world. So something like one out of every seven Colombians has been forcibly displaced by threats or outright violence um, over the last 35 years. So you know, maybe we could talk about uh, Syria or Iraq as comparable cases, but it's certainly for the Americas, it's the greatest instance of forced migration in, in the 20th century, I think. So I really wanted to recenter that experience as I was telling this story. Um, and in some ways, the most famous desplazado, the most famous displaced Colombian of them all in the 20th century is this guy you mentioned. So he's born Pedro Antonio Marin in 1930. He's born into a liberal family in the Western coffee zones of Colombia. And he's an itinerant merchant. Um, as a young man in the late 1940s, who's moving up and down the Cauca River Valley at the precise moment that the Colombian government begins to, the conservative government begins to crack down after the 1946 elections, and then particularly after the Bogotazo, these uprisings in 1948. So Marin sort of has to, is always staying a step ahead of these conservative police, these conservative paramilitaries. And ultimately, uh, by 1950, he joins up with 14 of his cousins and launches an attack on a local police post on the day that Laureano Gomez is inaugurated as president. Now, he eventually becomes part of this incipient liberal party resist rural resistance in the southern part of Tolima, which is led by one of his distant cousins. Um, but he becomes very disillusioned with how the liberals act. And he instead finds discipline in rural people, campesinos, who are affiliated with the Colombian Communist Party, who are living in the, living and fighting in the same part of Southern Tolima. So he, he's already become known at this point as Tiro Fijo, which does, is generally translated as sure shot. Um, but there's, there's these wonderful sort of Western inflected uh, Time magazine and other articles in the 60s that translate uh, Tiro Fijo as dead eye, which I absolutely love. Um, he hates this nickname. So he's given the opportunity in the early 1950s as he's sort of becoming won over to the Communist Party's perspective. Um, he takes this name Manuel Marulanda Vélez, who was a labor leader in the city of Medellín who was tortured to death by the Colombian Intelligence Service in the 1950s. Um, Tito Fijo thus becomes one of Colombia's sort of most famous backcountry fighters. And again, he's born in 1930, so he's, only, he's in his 20s in the 1950s. But he becomes uh, an adherent to this Creole piece in the late 1950s. He, he writes petitions in which he refers to himself as an ex-combatant. He gets loans, some of the government's loans. He also takes a job as a government uh, road construction inspector. Uh, and that was a particularly important piece of the government's outreach to the countryside in the wake of La Violencia, building roads, not just to offer people employment and keep them away from a return to arms, but then also connect these very disparate, far-flung rural settlements together, really integrate them into a, a sub-regional or a regional economy. It's not just what Bogotá wants to do. That's very much the hope of these local peoples throughout Colombia. So again, to talk about what Tito Fijo did as a young man, he's selling different kinds of goods, um, timber, etc. And you can imagine how hard that would be in a country 
or in a part of the country that doesn't have a lot of roads. Um, so in that way, he stands in for a lot of other Colombians in this time period. But by 1960, the government's, these post-conflict programs begin to wind down. On the one hand, the government faced really strong opposition from conservative uh, opposition conservatives in Congress in 1959, who criticized them for giving money to bandits and so on. Um, and actually, the, the most important act of violence that helps to torpedo the rehabilitation, Yeres Camargo's rehabilitation programs, actually happens in Rovida, where your family is from, um, in May of 1959. So because of this, and then also the money for rehabilitation for outreach to the countryside, it, it just dries up by early 1960s, or a year and change into Yeres Camargo's administration. Um, so beginning in 1960, there are, as you said, these not quantitatively important spikes in violence, but a few assassinations that really sap people's belief in what the government can get done, their faith in the goodwill of the party leadership and the state itself. So for instance, in early January 1960, uh, one of Tiro Fijo's comrades, who's known by the nom de guerra of Charro Negro, he really liked Mexican films and Mexican music, which is why he had that name. Charro is assassinated by a former comrade of theirs from the struggle of the 1950s, who's remained with the Liberal Party. His name is Mariachi, which also signals more of those Mexican cultural influences. So a number of scholars uh, have argued that Mariachi was in league with the Colombian state and that this murder of Charro Negro in 1960 is a first step towards uh, the state repression of popular agrarian, particularly communist aligned movements. But I argue in the book that we really need to see this key moment in Marulanda's, in Tiro Fijo's abandonment of the, the politics of peace of the late 1950s, to see it as a locally sort of constituted moment, that it's not about sort of a conspiracy of elites from Bogotá to Iwage down to Mariachi, but it's because of the political dynamics surrounding these post-conflict programs, that the money runs out, that the political possibilities that existed in 1958 are no longer around in 1960. So the story really changes. We've got a return of desplazados to their homes in 1958-59 in chapter three of the book, and then sort of the reversal of that story in 1960 in chapter four. So as in some way, this isn't quite the point you made before, but it's another paradox in some ways that the return of the displaced to their homes as part of the Creole piece actually allows for the Creole pieces unmaking because these returning displaced are targeted for violence, these very local acts that then have very significant uh, regional and national implications, reverberations. Okay, so we arrive to the final chapters of the book, and here you introduce a new type of letrado in Colombia. So you've already mentioned one of them, Orlando Fals Borda, who, by the way, I use in my work, but very differently, and also Camilo Torres. So this is a new figure in Colombian history, and it's important because they joined the País Nacional in feeling disenchanted with the reforms. So maybe here you can tell us a little bit about this man, um, in chapter six, you talk about a book titled La Violencia in Colombia. And this is an important book because it gave a new language to describe the violence of, of the past, right? So uh, in addition of publicizing some of the tales of violence and displacement collected by Father Guzman, this book also provided False Borda a forum to present a novel variant of violence as an idea, right? Something you mentioned in the very beginning of this interview. So maybe tell us a little bit about this 
this new type of letrado and also how you link this in chapter seven to to the history of País Político, the history of Marquetalia and the birth of the FARC. Yeah. So in the 1950s, because you have these authoritarian conservative and the military governments, a lot of Colombian liberals go abroad for their education. So they're coming back with graduate degrees at the moment that the National Front is created in the late 1950s. So they become the agents of a new developmentalist reformist state. So I mentioned at the start of the interview that Colombia becomes a showcase for the Alliance for Progress in the early 1960s, most significantly with the land reform initiative that's passed at the end of 1961. And Faz Borda is a sociologist, trained as a sociologist at the University of Florida, among other U.S. institutions. And he becomes really, I think, the key intellectual in this state project that's begun under Yedes Camargo that unfortunately for political reasons, only sort of comes into its own uh, under the administration of um, Yeres's successor. But Fosborda is very involved with the creation of a community development program in the late 1950s based on his fieldwork that really becomes one of the most successful and enduring community development projects or programs in the world. It's still an important site for the contestation of local democracy today uh, in Colombia. So the Falls Border then participates in a shift from these post-conflict rehabilitation programs uh, that I mentioned. I should say rehabilitation is the historical category that the actors are using in the late 50s. There's a transition from those programs in the late 50s to the more internationally inflected development programs of the 60s. We talked about how the political possibilities around post-conflict were closed off in by 1960. Uh, and that helps feed into this developmentalist moment globally uh, that begins to take form. So Falls Border is very involved with community development. He's also very involved with the early implementation of the agrarian reform law in 1961. Um, but he becomes best known in the country in 1962 for this co-authored book that's called La Violencia in Colombia, which is the most important work of Colombian social science, I think, still ever published. I have to say it's a very hard book to understand. I bought my copy of the book. It was like a 2005 edition on my first trip to the country in that same year. And it's traveled back and forth with me from wherever I've lived in the U.S. back to Bogota, back to the States more times than I can count. Uh, And a lot of the book is that the findings of the Peace Commission that were never published in the 1950s. So there's Guzman talking about the experience of of the violence in the 40s and 50s and then the peacemaking efforts of the late 50s. And then there are also these more academic chapters, very much um, functionalist sociology of the late 1950s. And this is in some ways actually a moment of intellectual disillusionment for Fals. He writes up a very theoretical chapter for this book that comes out in 62. But as he's writing it, he realizes that this sociological theory has no applicability to the Colombian situation. So as I said before, Politicians, intellectuals, particularly of Faz's generation, uh, become interested in Colombian solutions to Colombian problems. Uh, And this book is a crucial part of that process. The book is met with a firestorm of of anger from the conservative party in 1962 when it's published because Guzman blames a lot of what had happened in the country on the conservative party. And I think historically, that's a valid observation. So the 
the controversy over this book, La Violencia in Colombia, uh, is such that there are rumors of a coup attempt later in 1962. The army has to send tanks out onto the streets to put a clamp down. Fosborda and his co-authors have to go into hiding for a few weeks because they feel that their lives are in danger. And at the same time, as we get into the second National Front administration, 1962-63, there's a lot of political resistance to agrarian reform, to other development programs. And that really erodes Fosborda. These two processes erode Fosborda's sense of what's possible and what can be achieved in politics. So for him, that results in his coining the idea of La Violencia with capital letters later in the 1960s. And also crucial in that, you've mentioned Camilo Torres, uh, who's a priest, also trains in sociology in Europe. He and Fosborda co-found the sociology program with the National University in Bogota. But Camilo Torres becomes radicalized because of his involvement with student politics at the university. So he's got, he has famous showdowns with the church hierarchy, with, with political leaders in Colombia, uh, leaves the church and ultimately joins uh, the ELN, the Cuban-inspired guerrilla group, in late 65, and he's killed in early 66. So this the sense of personal loss that Fosborda suffers, be it intellectually, sort of bureaucratically, but then also personally with the loss of one of his closest collaborators, these are the strands of disillusionment that result in his coining the term Navioidencia. One other strand in that story uh, is one that I unravel in the last part of the last chapter of the book, and that has to do with the FARC. So as part of this growing, growing redefinition of the past after 1962, so you get Camargo is out of office, you've got a constitutionally mandated uh, conservative president in power, and the conservative party leads a charge to sort of rewrite history, the history of violence in Colombia. Again, sort of denying any chance of responsibility or any possibility of they're taking responsibility for what the party had done in the 40s and 50s. And it's at this moment that the Creole piece begins to become a forgotten piece. It's the contributions that liberals, conservatives, and communists all made to the peacemaking experiment. That begins to all get erased. And alongside that, there's increasingly militant rhetoric, some of it tied up with Cold War concerns from members of the regional and national political establishment against these rural communists like Tito Fijo. So by 1964, it's increasingly apparent or evident that there's going to be some sort of armed clash between the Colombian army, the Colombian government, and then these rural communists. And Fosborda and Camila Torres try to lead sort of a new peace commission out to one of these rural communities, the one in Marquetalia, famously the birthplace of the FARC, where Tito Fijo was a leader. They try to lead this commission out there, but they are stopped by the political establishment. So for them, that's another crucial moment in their disillusionment with the political establishment. And then you also, because they're not successful, you have the Colombian army invade Marquetalia in 1964, which, as I've said, leads to the creation of the FARC two years later. Yeah, and I usually I usually like to end up my interviews with a question about the present, and I think your book lends itself to this question today in the context of Colombia. So you were writing the book when the government and the FARC announced an agenda for peace negotiation, and you finished the revisions just weeks after Colombian voters rejected uh, the referendum, which was a very sad day. This happened in 2016. So this was... Uh, and is still a very timely book. So why is this history you're telling us important for Colombia today? 
especially considering that the peace treaty faces uh, many difficulties in its implementation. Yeah. So I really started working in earnest on the manuscript that became this book in 2012 as the FARC and the government announced that they were sitting down for negotiations in Havana. And as I was working on it over the subsequent years, I really intended it to show the historical possibility of peace in Colombia. But now that we're almost what, three and a half years into um, the Im implementation of this peace accord, I think the book's message has changed. And I, I wrote about this in the, the prologue to the Colombian edition of the book, which came out in Spanish 2018. I think the book now is really a cautionary tale for showing how precarious peace is. So we can talk about a couple of historical parallels. I already talked about how the Creole peace of the late 1950s began to break down around 18 months, a little bit sooner into Yeres Camargo's administration. We're now about, we're more than a year and a half out from the FARC's peace accord with the Colombian government. Um, and I think that was the window to really for the state to step up, to begin offering security, to begin offering social programs infrastructure, et cetera, to these rural communities, to both the ex-combatants and the people who had suffered, other people who had suffered in uh, the fighting, that window's closed. So I think these local breakdowns of the peace accord, so you know, it's not happening everywhere in the country, but it's happening in enough local places that it has also national reverberations, which is to say reverberations in the political sphere, in debates in Congress, in the press, and so on. Um, we're in the same moment now, give or take that, Tiro Fijo and the participants in the Creole peace were experiencing in early 1960. So it's been, it's been very hard to sort of watch this possibility for peace unravel over the past couple of years. Um, I, I am proud that a lot of what I say about, about the dynamics of peacemaking, some of the conclusions of the book, I feel that they've held up very well in light of developments on the ground in Colombia in recent years. You know, if I were to re if I were to write the book today, I would maybe change the emphasis around the middle of the book around what it means for to have a peace process uh, begin to take shape and then break down at the local level. I'd, I'd emphasize a few things uh, differently. But as you said, it's, it's really amazing uh, to me how the book has really speaks to this contemporary moment. Yeah, and it's very worrisome. Um, what is going on in Colombia? I mean, I feel with coronavirus sometimes we forget, but it's it's there and it's very unfortunate. Um, so on that sad note, <laughs> before finish it up, tell us what you're working on. What are your next projects? Yeah, so I've been focusing on a second book project that looks at crime, punishment, and rule in Colombia from 1886 to 1991. So it's the lifespan of the 1886 constitution. Um, and I'm particularly interested in questions around impunity and also penal excess. So I have some great archives for this. Um, for instance, I've been working with inmate files from Gorgona, which was Colombia's Alcatraz, this island prison that operated from 1960 until 1985. I also uh, have a project which has a digital humanities element about the Colombian elites. I'm inter interested in that and sort of exploring the ways in which inequality was has been perpetuated in Colombia um, since the early part of the 20th century. And I'm also very much interested in contemporary Colombian uh, 
affairs. Um, so the fact my book came out in Spanish in Colombia, uh, right around the time of the 2018 presidential election, which was in a lot of ways a referendum about the peace deal with the FARC, that allowed me to participate in a lot of academic and public conversations about these histories of peace and violence in Colombia. Um, and I've also um, become very active as an expert witness, uh, expert country conditions witness in the cases of Colombian asylum seekers, mostly in the United States. Um, so that's been a really meaningful way for me to connect my research interests to what's happening on the ground today. Yeah, and I I follow some of your initiatives in Twitter, and I, I think they're so important. And it's so important you publish your book in, in Spanish. Um, so, Rob, thank you for this interview. Thank you for, for this wonderful conversation. Thank you so much.